0: back to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. We have breaking news. People are complicated. I'm sure you've heard the term identity politics before. It's everywhere these days, and like cancel culture, it's become one of those buzzwords that most people reflexively can't stand. There's a reason both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were found on the campaign trail in 2016 and 2020 complaining about it pandering to this group or that group, dropping as many hyphenated Americans as you can into one sentence. I mean, for example, if you followed Senator Cory Booker's campaign, you would have thought he was running to be the president of trans POC college graduates. But it was Joe Biden who swept the board with black Democrats, forcing Booker out of the race before a single primary vote was ever cast. Biden didn't achieve that by tweaking his language to appeal to every teeny tiny little group. Not yet, anyways but by having the broadest appeal to the most possible people. That's what politics is supposed to be about, in theory. But identity politics requires slicing everyone up into groups, victim categories, oppressors, and the oppressed, instead of just looking at a person standing before you and saying, hey, I have no idea what your story is, or where you come from, what you believe, all I see is an individual. We're going to talk about identity politics today, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, and why it's gotten to be so toxic. It's become a trademark of the left. But to be frank, both sides can and do play this game. And it leaves us all dwelling on our differences and worse off because of it. Joining me as co host, he's back, people, Brad Palumbo, columnist for the Washington Examiner. And our guest is Zuri Davis. She's a criminal justice reporter and executive producer on the expungement experiment. And before that, she was an assistant editor over at Reason. Zuri, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us out of Florida.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, you just made a big move, right? You were in Nashville for a couple of years. uh, What's it like down in the Sunshine State?
1: Better? Superior? I'm (laughs) actually from here, so I'm really biased.
0: (laughs) Well, that that will do it. Uh, Nice. I'm glad you're back home. But uh, before we get rolling, a quick favor to everyone watching. If you haven't already, please be sure to hit the subscribe button for the show somewhere down on your web browser on our YouTube page. Follow us on Twitter. At rightly AJ or like us on Facebook, at rightly AJ. So, you know, Zuri, I never know where to start these things sometimes when we, we dive into an interview segment and we're going to dive into a, du- a really tough and dense topic. I met you back in 2015. We were briefly working together at a libertarianish nonprofit doing criminal justice reform work, among other things. And since you've kind of ping ponged around the libertarian world, journalism working on a whole host of issues and frankly like six years after having met you i'm kind of just confused right on like what you believe and where you fit into all of it you have so many different various identities and conflicting parts of you and i thought that would be just perfect for today's conversation to dig in so just to start could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the various pieces that make up who zuri davis is
1: Yes. Um, so like you said, we met in kind of libertarian and conservative circles. Um, since meeting each other, I've definitely um, become more libertarian, I'll say. But there are also other parts of my identity besides politics that are important to me. Obviously, I'm a black woman. I'm Catholic. I'm Christian. Um, all those things are very important to me. Um, and to be fair, I try to reflect or I guess my identities reflect in my politics. Um, But I guess for outside people, um, the way that I look or my religion or even my politics kind of makes them think one thing about me and they kind of seem pleasantly surprised when they see a a different side of me. Yeah,
0: just a quick question before we dive in. Are you a Catholic convert uh, or were you always Catholic?
1: Yes. No, so my... Long story short, my family was Catholic on my mom's side, yeah. then they stopped, and then I converted back in.
0: Okay, that sounds a little bit like my family as well. The, um, the kind of onus for talking about this all today was that we were discussing, doing an episode about the Equality Act. And, you know, you and Brad were both tweeting about it last week because it really gets to the core of a certain identity debate that we're having in this country about what is owed to people and how do we achieve equality or equity, which are kind of different things. Brad, could you explain to us what the Equality Act is, where it, where it's at in Congress, what it means?
2: Yeah, so who could oppose equality, right? Wait, wait, don't tell me. Mitch McConnell. Well, that's because <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that. The Equality Act... is much more controversial than just the abstract notion of equality or equal rights, which polling would show even most Republicans support for LGBT Americans. But what the Equality Act does is it takes the Civil Rights Act, which protects, you know, race, uh, sex, national origin, um, in housing and other federal employment law and gives them anti-discrimination protections, and it adds sexual orientation and gender identity as protected characteristics. But it does that, more than that.
0: Yeah, but that sounds like very 2021 to me. Like, what's what's controversial?
2: So the difference is that it also undermines existing federal laws that protect religious liberty and basically just wipes them out. And then it also expands the scope of anti-discrimination law far beyond where it previously went and makes that in any dispute, the LGBT person's claim wins by default. Uh-huh. So it really, in my view, is more than equality. It's about elevating uh, LGBT Americans, among which I count myself, right, a gay guy, um, over the the rights of, of religious Americans who we really should be leaving them the private sphere of private Catholic schools and renting out a room in your own home. And it, it really overreaches, in my view. But that's, that's the issue that's at the heart of, of what Congress is debating.
0: Well, Zuri, uh, C- Catholics tend to find themselves at the heart of most religious liberty conversations in politics these days for some reason. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you think about the Equality Act and kind of where it fits into your nexus of views?
1: Well, um, this is kind of where my libertarian side comes out, but I also don't believe my Catholic side is incompatible with it, um, which is I see this legislation as kind of um, the pendulum swinging back. For so long, um, LGBT Americans have been discriminated against in a lot of ways, and unfortunately a lot of that discrimination was perpetuated for religious reasons. Um but definitely in ways that have gone far above and beyond religious teaching. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't kind of cultivated a space in which we can help them feel accepted. Um, and we've kind of, like, there's such a divide between our beliefs and the love that of Christ and, um, things kind of, of that nature. There's such a divide between uh, those beliefs and then some of the things that we do. Um, so I kind of see something like the Equality Act as a conversation piece, um, to kind of rebuild some bridges that have been burnt in terrible ways with so our LGBTQ um, yes.
2: I think most people would agree, right, that McDonald's should not be able to send someone packing because they marry another man. Or that a grocery store shouldn't be able to say, no hiring uh, transgender people with a sign in their window. The, the, the question is, can we strike a balance? Can we protect LGBT Americans under civil rights law without going in and intervening in private religious schools or what a, a Catholic adoption agency can do? Because like you said, it's about the pendulum swinging the opposite way. And the Equality Act is one vision, but isn't there another vision where we balance people's rights and we focus on pluralism and coexisting? Religious Americans don't infringe on me, and I don't infringe on them. Isn't that a a better vision to go with this kind of of policy?
1: Sure. Well, that's actually um, why cultural issues are so important that's something that we need to communicate um i personally have been very blessed to meet lgbtq christian friends um, who have taken it upon themselves to create these spaces in religious communities because they want to be a part of these communities they want to be equal in these communities and i think having their witness um being able to have conversations with people on all sides at the end of the day um that does so much for the culture and it obviously there's um As a libertarian, there are concerns about the government making rules for the private sector, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the private sector is absolved from this. I think that (laughs) as a libertarian tag,
0: kind of one of the funny parts about this is because we kind of often will be confronted with an issue like this and we go, Well, as a libertarian, I feel like I am supposed to believe this because there is a tribal element to that. There's like a group of people who sort of have a doctrine and then they have a subscribed set of rules and you're supposed to go along with it and apply this issue to that that nexus of opinions. But, you know, that's exactly what religion and faith is as well. So, like, Brad, I I just want to ask to you, like, why are you so passionate in defending religious liberty? You're not a Christian. It's not, you know, it's not your it's not your ballpark. Um, But I've never met a more like vociferous defender of religious liberty um, coming from the LGBTQ community community as you.
2: Yeah. So for me, it's a simple matter of if you won't defend the rights of people you disagree with, you don't defend the rights for anybody at all. And so I've always looked at it like this. If I want the right to live my life as I see fit, free from infringement, which is what gay people struggled for decades before I was born trying to achieve. Right. Well, then I can't in any good conscience, in any good faith, go around and turn around and say, well, now it's our turn in charge. Now we're the ones with the popular majority in the polling. So let's go use the state to persecute and crack down on religious people who won't actively affirm my worldview. I think that in America, one one of the things that makes us great is that here you have free speech. You have freedom of religion. You have freedom of conscience. You have freedom of thought. And I have to stand up for those, even when it's people I totally disagree with. And I, I guess I'll throw this back to you, Zuri, right? How, so I find that contradiction in my identity, where most LGBT people are, have no tolerance for religious liberty. They say all discrimination must go. But as a religious person who is also, a, I think in many ways, pro-LGBT, how do you balance that own contradiction? Because that's the, oftentimes the loudest voices of the religious right are out here not just arguing against anti-discrimination law, but arguing some pretty antagonistic things about gay and transgender people.
1: Yeah, so that's where the responsibility definitely lies on people within the community. Um, so that's one thing I've really tried to stress, which is whatever community or communities you find yourself a part of, you should be the loudest person demanding accountability. And that's where it's kind of our role as Christians to teach other Christians that they don't have to act this way. Um, the best example I can give is a couple years ago in Mississippi, um, there was an interracial couple who was trying to rent a venue for their wedding, and the person, um, the owner of the venue, told them that it was her religious beliefs that interracial marriage was wrong. Um, well, she actually got a call from her pastor, and her pastor took the time to explain to her that her uh, feelings on interracial marriage weren't actually biblical, and she changed. She um, She adapted. And I think that that is the best example um, that we can have is that, like, these are cultural issues at the end of the day. um, And it's up to us as defenders of liberty and equality to call out people on our side and to educate them and to have those conversations.
2: So I I wonder how familiar you are with the example of Utah, Zuri, because I know you're not a Mormon or a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. But Utah is a Mormon state, and it's a very kind of socially conservative, religious right state. Yet They were actually one of the first states in the country to protect LGBT Americans under civil rights law and to ban anti-gay conversion therapy. Now, they did this in a place of compassion, working with the church, and with clear religious liberty exceptions in the law. So they came together with LGBT advocates at Equality Utah, and the, the actual Church of Latter-day Saints of, of Jesus Christ, and they found this middle ground based in tolerance. How much of that do you see in the religious community as a rising force? Because to me, as an outsider, who's not religious, right? That kind of unifying, thoughtful position where they don't, they don't believe, they still believe homosexuality is a sin, they still have all their same religious beliefs, but they've come to the table mm-hmm. to live together. How much of that do you see on the rise, uh, on the right and in religious circles more broadly?
1: I definitely see um, that I'd say it's kind of a generational issue. Unfortunately for a lot of older Americans, they're very set in their ways and their beliefs. But thankfully, a lot of younger Americans my age were seeing where they went wrong and we're seeing the harm that caused and how that pushed people away from the church. Um, so I actually... Oh, golly, I totally forget her name. I know her first name is Nadia, but her last name is Escaping Me. She's an Episcopalian priest, I believe, out in Colorado, and she be, she basically created this space where LGBT Christians feel accepted and they worship in her church, and I actually know someone um, who got to attend one of her church services one time, and he said he had an amazing time. And it's just things like that, um, just learning from the mistakes of our elders, um, seeing what is actually in the Bible and seeing, finding ways where we can become compassionate and then creating those spaces where we can do outreach. Um, I think <laughs> there's such, um, it's kind of like an illusion of a divide between LGBTQ Americans and the religious community. When you think about black Americans, for example, um, Christianity, it's not necessarily just a religion, it's kind of a way of life. And there are a lot of gay Christians, especially um, gay black men, who sing in the choir, who love going to church, who have, um, who have more positive experiences in that community. Um, and I think it's up to Whether or not someone identifies as a Christian or not, it's definitely up to us to create an accepting space for them. But especially for those who still want to be Christians, there's no reason why we should be turning them away.
0: Kind of um, backing up here a little bit, the question of identity and whether or not that it's important. Libertarians and conservatives, I feel like, have always been reflexively very against the idea that the groups that you're part of are supposed to govern how you're perceived or or what you're supposed to believe. And I think that's a good thing. We have this strong individualist streak. But Zuri, in observing you, and everybody should follow you on Twitter and keep up with your stuff, Like, I have sensed in you a reluctance to continue going along with libertarians and conservatives on their rejection of the importance of identity. That there's sort of something baked into our, our movement that you can't accept different identity tags, because then, you know, you're putting American second and you're putting black American first. Um, Where do you think that there is, I don't know, maybe let's start with like the toxic side. Like where have things gone wrong with identity politics within the libertarian movement and conservative politics?
1: Sure. Um, First, I'd just like to say you're absolutely correct. And I do believe the libertarian and conservative view is correct that when you see someone, um, you shouldn't see their identity. You shouldn't look at surface level things and make assumptions about who they are, how they're going to act, um, things of that nature. But the problem is there's such an overcorrection in that there are things about your identity that are important. As a black woman in the South, there are things about being a black woman in the South um, that are significant and there are experiences that I have um, that are generally shared by other black women in the South, other black people in the South, other women in the South. Um, so it's important to acknowledge the experiences that um, people have, especially minorities. Um, but at the end of the day, like I said, the overcorrection on the right, which is just to ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. Of course, there is that overcorrection on the left, which is to say that it's the only thing that's important right. and that exists and there does need to be a middle ground like we need to acknowledge the the things that keep us together and i'm thinking about um the talk which is Uh, The conversation that a lot of black parents have with their children about how to survive a police stop, um, what people may assume about you when they see you, when they see your skin color in the workplace, for example, when they see your natural hair, for example. Um, Those are things that we should acknowledge and we should never, ever tell someone that their experiences are invalid um, but we should use those experiences to try to create a better world, um, so those experiences don't have to be so divisive. Yeah, Brad, um, in Brad the talks a lot
0: about um, <laughs> his beef with like hashtag walkaway and hashtag blexit, You know, where yeah. there's there's this element to the identity politics thing on the right, where in rejection of identity politics. Mm-hmm you're supposed to do this certain thing and then go along with the other side almost as like a mascot of a person who was able to stop you know, the brainwashing of them right. by the left. But then you end up becoming like, not I don't like using the word token, but like a mascot for right. I mean, the I, establishment views. I've
2: experienced this firsthand, right? Because I have seen up close and personal the toxic left-wing identity politics, right? They accuse you, if you're one of the 15% of LGBT people that voted for Trump or didn't vote for Biden, or didn't vote for Hillary, or isn't a liberal or progressive, you're a traitor. You're a self hating. Um,
0: yeah, I never knew until meeting you that you had to vote a certain way to go to a gay do. bar and feel safe. So
2: I know, I've been told literally that in the gay bars in Washington, D.C., if I show my face, I'll be kicked out and thrown out like one of the traitor Jews in Nazi Germany, is what people have said to me. Uh, and on the flip side, right? You have so so that's very real, and I know I don't want to get away from the fact that that's very real. But you have this overcorrection, and I want to ask you about this, Zuri, because it's true in the gay community, right? You have the hashtag Walk Away People, but I think it's especially true with some of the most loudest, if not most common, voices uh, in terms of Black Republicans, where they say not only uh, do we reject identity politics, but we are the Black Republican conservative leading the free thinkers out of the plantation. Uh, and then they go down what I see as a really tokenistic and toxic in its own way path. So wh- what do you think of that and how do we avoid that over course correction?
1: Yeah, it's really unfortunate because by no means do they reflect the average Black American. Or, or well, neither those either. But they don't reflect a lot of Black Republicans and Black conservatives. It, there's such a frustration um, Amongst that group, where the types of people who do who do get those mics um, tend to be very much on like they use like the plantation um, talk, and they just definitely go the opposite way about it. There are actually a lot of Black Republicans that I've met, um, even some who voted for Trump, who believe. Uh, Black Lives Matter. And they say that and they care about police shootings, like they care about black cultural issues. And at the end of the day, being a black American is still a very important part and very important aspect of their identity. Um, but unfortunately for a lot of the black Republicans who have kind of gotten the biggest stages, um, they kind of go opposite with it and use their platforms to disparage black Americans, which actually does a lot of harm. Why do they do um, that? And only perpetuate stereotypes. There are lots of um, reasons <laughs> that I can think of. One of them is um Honestly, it's just easier to get a platform like that um, in the market of ideas. Unfortunately, there's a market for their, those ideas, and those people capitalize off of them. I think we're having um, a very polite way of saying exists... to make
0: tons of money. Right,
2: that's where the big gigs are—the <laughs> yeah. millions make, of followers to
0: make money. But, off with, the, but so contradiction. <laughs>
2: well, let me ask you this, though: the, the Black conservatives, yeah. the Candice, the Candace Owens of the world. Ninety-nine percent of their audience is white, right? Yeah. So they're yep. they're basically yep. embracing this right wing identity politics to milk white Republican boomers who, who want affirmation, unless I'm reading this wrong.
1: Yes. It says a lot um if you're not actively a part of a community, like if you're not going to historically black colleges and universities, for example, um, if you're not, and this is just beyond messaging, but even in something like for an election, if you're wa- not walking a black community, a, a black neighborhood, it's hard. Um, it's kind of unfair to present yourself as a spokesperson for an entire group of people that you never interact with, <laughs> um, but all of that to say um, unfortunately, yes, there are the Candace Owens of the world, um, but there are also a lot of black Republicans, for example, Kira Davis, um, she just wrote something for Red State um, about black messaging. And there are lots of people like her who have, who are a part of those communities who and who actually care and want to use their messaging to benefit those communities who just happen to be on the right.
0: Yeah, proponents of identity politics, and this goes, goes back a long way. There is an argument that identity politics is about showing the importance of difference so that we are not too hung up on the civil rights era ideal of equality. Martin Luther King was able to rally the country around Uh, Taking on segregation and Jim Crow by reminding us of what we have in common. And then you had this era kind of ushered in of the idea of equality being the ideal, no difference, Americans first, being colorblind. And, you know, Stephen Colbert used to make fun of me. He's like, I don't see color. But that was the joke. Like, that was the joke of the Republicans of the Reagan era because all of their policymaking did not account for the idea of equity. Which was just like, do we all start on the same playing field? Like, yes, we are different and we are equal, but do we? Are we born the same way? Like, that's the way privilege right. comes in. Like, the privilege aspect challenging the idea of equality is what is starting this new era of fighting over identity politics, out with equality and with equity. I don't know what we do with
2: that. The problem, I think, is that they—if uh, you take the colorblind approach completely then that just serves to enshrine whatever inequalities exist under the status quo. Problem, I think, with the left is they've abandoned the colorblind or identity as an afterthought approach, even as an ideal. They don't even strive towards that anymore. But Zuri, I, I guess throwing that to you, what's the right middle ground? What's, how do you uh, address both factors without falling into the trap that far left and far right seem to have found themselves in on this one?
1: Yeah, um, definitely analyzing I feel like a lot of times uh, a lot of people present policy solutions um, but they don't do the work of looking back to see its effect Um, so and that's kind of a larger government issue how often do we go back and look at laws and see or even programs or departments, how often do we look and see what the actual impact of those were um, and how often can we say, actually, it's time to do something different or it's time to pass a new law to kind of make up uh, for the wrong. And it is funny that you mentioned the Reagan years because, um, as we know, like those were the years when the war on drugs (laughs) uh, really ramped up. And there were a lot of black Americans who were being disproportionately sent to prison, um, for drug possession, even though possession rates amongst black Americans and white mm-hmm. Americans were very similar. Um, so you, and obviously that has a generational effect. There are actually a lot of people still in prison, um, because of the decisions made, um, under that administration. And of course other administrations, um, following it. So that's definitely, uh, it is hard to say that the the colorblind approach is the best approach because you see all of the ways, as was just stated, that it kind of encapsulates whatever inequality is happening at the time and it just perpetuates this bad system. Um, but definitely if there were some sort of analysis or, or if people... As- Particularly politicians were humble enough to say, okay, we've learned about these different inequalities that we'd never considered before. Now, how's our legislation going to affect mm-hmm. that? I yeah. think that would provide for better legislation. Obviously, sometimes the best legislation is no legislation, because like I said, um, some of the things that we talk about are cultural issues, and it's up to us to have those conversations
0: if you're, um, um...
1: with others.
0: Yeah, no, I just I just wanted to reset the table here real quick. Um, in case you forgot, you are watching right now with Stephen Kent. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Rightly aj to join the conversation every Thursday. And definitely do leave us some comments. Sometimes we read them on the show, and we do like to hear from you. Um, Zuri, one thing I wanted to ask in response to that is we're, we're told sort of in libertarian conservative politics to be hands-off about government solutions to, you know, Issues of equity, that, that that's sort of distasteful and getting the government involved in ways that it shouldn't. One of the areas where I have sort of had my mind changed on this a little bit kind of goes back to housing, and it was part of like the racial wealth gap discourse, uh, really driven, I think, effectively by, by Cory Booker, talking about the racial wealth gap and the idea of particularly home ownership. Like a lot of white wealth, and this is not, you know, all white people, but like a lot of white families enjoy generational wealth of home ownership passed down from parent to child to parent to child. And you don't even really see it until you are, I don't know, you wreck your car and you need to go to the hospital and your dad just happens to have money in the bank account because there's just been money there and there's equity tied up in the home and you can actually address things when they come up. That's the original safety net, actually having generational wealth um, from your parents. White families got a head start on that. You had like the GI Bill after World War II, gave everybody homes who served, unless you were black. And then you, you you get decades down the road, and of course there's not ownership of, of property. Like that's what gives you the power to have political um, political power and also choices. And this is an area where I've gone, okay, well this was a government created problem. We gotta have a government created solution? Like that's maybe that's how unlibertarian. Do
2: avoid, how do you avoid, you know, the government stepping in and and worsening the differences yeah. between groups and accentuating further those divides? I think of something like reparations, right, in terms of government confiscation of wealth from white Americans and, and redistributing it to black Americans as something that, that from where I said, it just would make everyone more focused on racial issues and more divided and more uh, feeling like that we don't have one harm, a harmonious interest. So I agree with you, right? That's so real and so valid, that historical reality, but how do you address it in a way that doesn't come off as woke excess virtue signaling or as really uh, explicit government policy that enshrines group differences?
1: I just wanna say, first of all, um, obviously, It's hard to, I don't have a lot of faith in the government. Um, If you look at a lot of the housing inequality, for example, it's because of overzealous government, because of overzealous Mm -hmm. planning. Um, I like to tell people um, at the time that I lived in Nashville, um, I had a vested interest in the North Nashville community. It's the historically black community in Nashville. Um, That's where my family came from. That's where I converted at, uh, Nashville's only black Catholic church. Um, it's a very important community to me, but unfortunately, um, with certain projects, for example, the construction of Highway I-40, um, it was done in such a way to slow integration, Mm -hmm. and it actually contributed to a lot of segregation and the loss of wealth opportunities for a whole generation of people. Um, And you see that all over with eminent domain, um, other sorts of urban planning projects, redlining, for example. Um, So, first and foremost, it should be acknowledged that this is a government-created problem. Um, The fact that government created um, these inequalities it kind of, <laughs> it's not to say it's necessarily up to the government to fix it, but in some ways it is its responsibility to at least acknowledge the harm that it caused. Um, in terms of reparations, uh, you can easily see, I i will just say this first of all, I'm actually in favor of reparations. I'm not quite sure what that would look like. I've heard many different um good ideas that i believe so for example um a couple of libertarians and conservatives that i've spoken to who are in favor of reparations believe that reparations should come in the form of a school choice uh, of a school voucher um and i agree with that because when you look at certain communities that have been harmed especially black communities by um government uh intervention this way like they've lost um good educational opportunities, and they should be able to live in a world where um, they should have access to those. Well,
2: let me ask so you about that, it's definitely, right? because if we mm-hmm. just pursue school choice policies that help more people and more families pursue um, you know, the education that's right for them and escape failing government schools, that will disproportionately help African American families but that's not reparations because you're not just targeting it to only African-Americans. So why not pursue the betterment and advancement through stuff that still embodies the, the colorblind ideal? Uh,
1: because um, first and foremost, there's, There should never be legislation that divides people. Um, It's not actually progress if you are actively keeping another side down. Like, you shouldn't help black Americans at the expense of white Americans, but it's also unfair to deny um, the disproportionate harm caused to black communities. Um,
0: So, Uh, one of the things that I feel like we gotta try to hash out is The issue of power dynamics. So in identity politics or with identity politics, you run into this problem of recognizing difference. We want to recognize difference as individuals. We are not all the same. We are not all just Americans. There are things that we have chosen to be together on in protection of each other's rights. That's what being an American is about. But if you come to this country with just like, I'm just going to isolate into my own silo or my own community, or I'm just going to be part of this community but not the American uh, population as a whole, like you don't get unity. You get a lot, a lot of division. And there's always going to be an outgroup. In identity politics as it is currently structured, there's been a really good defense of it. Like Zach Beochamp at Vox wrote a really good piece on why there is nothing more liberal, and I mean like good and healthy for our, our politics, than identity politics. But he leaves out the possibility that you just end up with outgroup politics. Coca-Cola teaching its employees about whiteness, almost as if it is like an illness that needs to be treated. White fragility topping the Amazon bestsellers. And you have like the women's march, uniting people around, I don't know, democratic politics on, on the left, just for women. And they are able to unite around a set of issues and then they achieve a bunch of victories in the 2018 midterms after the first Women's March. But you're not allowed to be part of the Women's March unless you have a certain subscribed set of views. And if you disagree with their politics, you are a white supremacist by nature and engaging uh, in a white supremacist movement. And like, that's the thing that you can't reconcile is that it has gone to the realm of having an out group that you have to be part of if you don't go along.
1: Yeah, which I I would actually like to um, push back on that idea. Actually, do. so um, obviously being Catholic, I'm pro life. Um, And also, I'm not a Democrat, but I attended the Women's March with a bunch of pro-lifers. Some were Democrats, some were apolitical, some were Republican. And we actually had a really good time at the march. Um, There were actually a couple of women around us, and they saw our pro-life signs. And we actually had a good conversation, and we found middle ground. We found things that we all liked and could talk about and joke about. Um, So... uh, going to something like that where people just assumed, oh, I bet they were mean to you and said all these things. Well, no, we went in respectfully. We explained ourselves. And yes, there was a little bit of confusion and perhaps some tension, um, but it was diffused easily because we were respectful. Right. Um, And at the end of the day, we still were all feminists and we cared about women, and that's what we were there for. So, but Um, isn't the problem
2: that that things like the Women's March, and I've experienced this with gay pride, right, if you go to a a gay pride event or something, the the whole thing will be littered with anti-gun control protests, or I'm sorry, anti-gun protests or anti-Trump paraphernalia everywhere. And I was hardly a Trump fanboy, right? But I reject the idea that those sorts of things should be tied up in your identity or that celebration of a characteristic that shouldn't determine how you think.
0: And I remember, Zuri when you went to the Women's March, uh, because you're part of Feminists for Liberty, really great. Uh, libertarian organization that works on feminist causes and that group is really good at just going to the event and being there letting nobody tell them that they can't be there because they are united around enough causes to share space but also i remember the the controversy over the flag uh, with the star of david you know jewish women
2: we're not uh, allowed to march with that right, flag. right not
0: allowed to march with the the flag for israel because that goes against the intersectional ideology so there was an outgroup and a, a rule that certain people could not participate in the way they wanted to. I wonder what would have happened if the Feminists for Liberty had tried to march with a Gadsden flag. <laughs> like, that probably wouldn't have gone well.
1: Yeah, well, if I may add, um, so the group that I marched with, um, Rehumanized International, they're um, a consistent life ethics group, so they... In addition to abortion, they also um, believe in ending the death penalty, um, you know, ending drone strikes overseas, things like that. Um, So they actually um, made the news because they were initially invited or um, kind of like a sister group, New Way Uh Feminists, they were invited um, to kind of have their name on the event. And then when everyone found out it was a pro-life group, they were uninvited. Um, but we still showed up. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's kind of one of the things that if you care about an idea, um, you should create a coalition. And sometimes you have to do the dirty work, and you have to show up, and you have to let people say whatever it is they're going to say about you. Um, but if you're confident in the things that you believe about... Uh, If if you're confident in your beliefs, um, then you should be confident that you can take that message anywhere um, and just communicate it respectfully. And we did that and we ended up having a really good time.
0: I guess just to round us down here, I just wanna put on the table for Brad and for Zuri, is identity politics worth entertaining and trying to salvage the good aspects of it and talking about it in a way that is redeemable? Or do we need to scrub it from our discourse and make it go away? Is there a way to have both?
2: My take is that there's not, and that you have to really reject the kind of toxic view of identity politics that started on the left and is permeated throughout media, corporate America. And then once we're rid of that, we can talk about positive ways of affirming and talking about identity. I think it's too far gone.
1: I think that we just need to be open and honest. Um, I think. Like I said earlier, it's just a lot of pendulum swinging. It's a lot of people who don't want to talk about issues, so then they go the complete opposite way and they make that issue everything. There has to be a middle ground. We have to be honest enough to acknowledge inequalities, (laughs) to acknowledge our history, um, to acknowledge that uncomfortable realities exist for a lot of people. um, But then the end goal should be, well, how do we make this um, to where those barriers don't exist anymore? Um, And that should be the primary focus.
0: Zuri Davis, thanks so much for joining us today on Right Now.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: If you read Dr. Seuss books growing up or read them to your kids now, you've probably also been reading about the dust-up over the decision by Dr. Seuss Enterprises to stop publishing six of his books. The company said the books portray people in hurtful ways, in other words, with dated racial stereotypes. The reaction was what you'd expect, very loud, Cancel culture run amok. Excessive political correctness, they say. President Biden got blamed for the canceling of Dr. Seuss because he didn't mention the author in his Read Across America Day proclamation. And in the event, it led to a spike in Dr. Seuss book sales and some clever tweets and comments, which we're going to read aloud today. The first one I have here is from Raven Quoth Me. People need better Twitter handles. Who says she won't erase Dr. Seuss? I won't erase him on a plane. I won't erase him on a train. I won't erase him with a mouse. I won't erase him from my house. Does she have a mouse? I mean, you got to do a little bit. Better Credit for than
2: trying, that. though. And I'll say, I'll just say this, right? Three stars. <laughs> Dr. Seuss. I'm not gonna get all worked up about it. But if they come for the
0: Lorax, we riot. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it is only a matter of time. He now, was a liberal icon for a while. But
2: Jimmy Kimmel, that. now, he joked that Dr. Seuss Enterprises is tweaking the other titles to, you know, preempt the cancelers and make sure they don't get in trouble. So, remember Horton Hears a Who? Well, now we're going to have Horton Hears a They.
0: <laughs> uh, and Green Eggs and Ham? No, no eggs and ham for the vegans out there. We don't want to offend the vegans. They are violent. The Babylon Bee's latest title for an article... In new Dr. Seuss book, Cat in the Hat gives kids puberty blockers while their mother is home. Oh, God. <laughs> that
2: was... Reading that might get us canceled, but Dr. Seuss would be fine. <laughs>
0: no, it's not our fault.
2: So this one is from the former White House press secretary, Sean Spicer. Oh, the places you won't go, Dr. Seuss, because of the left. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> All right. Ben Shapiro is out here giving the cancelers very bad ideas. Don't do this. He recalled the Bernstein Bears in a passage that reads, wait for it, every single bear we see is a he-bear or a she. Get Bernstein Bears while you can. Ooh, that he one didn't age point. well. He I, might have a point. They're going to come for it.
2: We're going to have to have a, a book-burning party for the Bernstein Bears now. But uh, this one is from at Peachy Keenan. Then I thought and I thought till my hair started to frizz. Why, when everyone's canceled, then nobody is.
0: That's actually a good one. Points for quality. five, Five stars for Peachy Keenan. I think she wins. We always like to wrap up on some good news and for this episode, it's the fight against homelessness. Homelessness is awful. It's hell for the people trapped in it and it's not too nice for everyone else who has to be around it. It happens for all sorts of reasons, but its persistence is the result of bad government and bad choices. The good news is that a handful of cities, including Denver, Minneapolis, and Charlotte, North Carolina, are tackling their tent cities and homelessness problem by using tiny homes and vacant warehouses to create housing. Shelters are often dead ends for people. To get back on their feet, they need four walls of their own and the dignity that that brings. The only reason this isn't more common is bad city zoning policy that does not allow for the use of tiny homes by nonprofits who want to help people or that block derelict parking lots from being used for better purposes. So bravo, Denver, Minneapolis, Charlotte. It's a positive trend and we need to see more of it.
2: Isn't it great, right? And and I think this is an important one for us to talk about too, because it's always been like, well, what's the conservative solution to the cities and to homelessness as a serious problem and a serious social ill?
0: Yeah, and the past one has always been throw the book at people and over police. Obviously, the homeless. that doesn't help. Yeah, you criminalize homelessness.
2: But this is a good example where getting the government out of the way allows people to help other people. Where right now, you know, big government that progressive city officials in many other cases think can solve everything has for a long time been stopping these kinds of solutions so to see it go, getting out of the way and seeing people getting on their feet it's a great yeah. thing.
0: A lot of people reflexively feel that there's not enough being done on the individual and private sector level to help problems like homelessness but you really don't know based on like your city codes are they even able to help like yeah. can you get people off the streets and put them in homes this is, like the,
2: this is like the food, co- the food regulations that make it illegal to donate leftovers.
0: I was right? just talking about this the other day. Like Food waste is largely a problem of rules that are in place by the bureaucrats that allow you or disallow you from actually feeding hungry people. It's insane. Insanity. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Stephen Kent. Check back next week for a new episode of Right Now.